indeed our tonight to introduce to you our speaker. We have been anticipating for some months now the coming of Reverend Duncan Campbell, who is a native of Scotland, where he's principal of a Bible college there, and as we have been saying, greatly used of God in a ministry of revival, not only in the British Isles, but uh, throughout different portions of the world. This is not his first visit to Canada, but I believe it's his first visit to Regina. So we welcome him and trust that God will minister through him to us tonight. Before we turn to the Word of God, I should like to say one word of thanks to the pastor for his very warm and very gracious words of welcome. I'm sure I'm happy and privileged to be with you here this evening. Indeed, I feel very much at home already. Uh, being motored to the church, I saw Lawrence Street and uh, was certainly impressed. I presume called after Lorne in the old country, Argyleshire, that part of Scotland in which I was born and brought up and also brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ many years ago when the district of Lorne was swept by revival. So uh, I do feel at home with you, being so near to Lord Street. Then, uh, I do trust you will not find it too difficult uh, to follow my Scottish Highland accent. Uh, Gaelic is my native language. I uh, think in Gaelic, but I've got to come down to your level and talk to you in English. However, I'm sure that uh, the good Lord will help us. And now will you turn with me to the portion of scripture which we read together, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, and we shall turn again to that very familiar passage, verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus and when they prayed the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they speak the word of God with boldness and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And when they had prayed, the place 
more shaken where they were assembled together. The burden that is on my heart this evening for this meeting is that of a message on the Holy Ghost in revival, or God in revival. It will be generally agreed that the world we knew a few years ago is gone beyond recall, at least so far as man is concerned. Ideas and habits that seem to be part of the solid foundation of things have been completely abandoned and are being remembered today as that which belongs to the vanished past, the God, the God. Now it seems to me that in this shaking of things, we as Christian men and Christian women must ask ourselves, what is the church doing today? What am I doing today to establish and advance the kingdom that cannot be shaken? In other words, what are we to offer a generation that uh, is awake but is failing to find the answer to the supreme problem of the age, and the supreme problem is sin. I know of no question in all the range of thought so vital in its issues, so devastating in its implications, ask this one question. Is the Christian church today, I speak as a Presbyterian minister, is the Christian church today a light that marks the road that leads men to the land? A lighthouse, for instance, can be very imposing. The structure, perfect, the work of a master. But that structure in the ocean could be a positive danger to navigation, but for the light. It's the light that gives warning. It's the light that gives direction apart from the light, a positive danger to navigation. There are institutions today in the world, they certainly are to be found in Britain. They speak of them as churches. 
But I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying a positive danger in a Christian community because they lack the one thing that can alone constitute the church of God. The power, the presence, the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It was my privilege some time ago to address a, convert, uh, a congregation of uh, clergymen of the Church of England under the chairmanship of the Bishop of Plymouth. I want to read to you words spoken by the Bishop in his chairman's remarks. Might I suggest that the serious question that confronts us today is not that the state of our country is so bad, but that in a country that claims to be Christian, the Christian witness has been and is so feeble and ineffective. How is it that while we make such great claims for the power of the gospel in practice, we see so very little, now I want to note this, we see so very little of the supernatural in operation. Of course, you believe that the work of God is supernatural. A Christian is a supernatural being, or is not a Christian. He is a person who has had a supernatural experience, and is so supernaturally altered that in the moment of his conversion, he is characterized by godliness in every part of his being, body, soul, and spirit. I believe that the regeneration of a soul, that is a man brought into saving, covenant, and vital relationship with God, is a man who knows the miracle working power of God in his life. I say again that regeneration is God's greatest miracle, far greater than the creation of worlds. Worlds will fall, will break, will burn. They will wax dim in, the, in their orbit. They will fall like leaves in autumn. I believe that day is coming. But the deathless soul who has known the miracle of the new birth will survive the wreck of a million worlds. He's alive in God, the God that is eternal. Eternity is in his. Miracle. 
Well, in this portion of scripture which we have just read, we have miracles demonstrated. When they prayed, the place was shaken, and multitudes were added to the church. That is God at work. God at work. Now one naturally asks, what had the early disciples that the church lacks today? How is it that we're not witnessing miracles? How is it that we seldom hear the cry of a penitent? Or a man under deep distress of soul in his search after reality in God? What had it? There's only one answer to that question. They had the Holy Ghost. In other words, they believed in the personality of the third person of the Trinity, God, of the Holy Ghost. And it was the impact of God, the impact of the Holy Ghost. Not the eloquence of Peter, not the logic of his servant, but God, the Holy Ghost. Now let me illustrate by an incident that I shall not touch on on Sunday evening. I was in a church one evening in the northwest of Scotland, I was asked to assist at a communion service. Now, in that part of Scotland, a communion lasts for several days. It begins by a prayer meeting on Wednesday night and finishes by a Thanksgiving service on Sunday night or Monday night. On this occasion, I was asked to preach the action sermon. That is the main sermon of the communion. I felt the going extremely hard. The parish, the district, had not been visited by anything in the nature of revival. God was sweeping through communities sixty odd miles away, but not in this community. Halfway through my address, I noticed that a young boy, 16 years of age, who was saved in the revival and who had come to this communion service, I saw him weeping bitterly. Tears flow in revival. We seldom see tears flowing today. Oh, thank God I saw them in Toronto last week, and God in his mercy visited He's weeping. And I realized that the boy sitting in the pew was nearer to God than the minister in the pulpit. 
And I stopped preaching. And I asked him to pray. Converted about six weeks or thereabouts. Had a remarkable experience in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I trust to believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Of a definite, distinct experience. This young lad had it. So much so that a party had to go out in such often. He went out to herds and cattle on the hillside. God met with him and he's lying among the heather with wave after wave of divine realization sweeping through him. So much so that he forgot all about time and home. But they found him there. Well, I'm asking him now to lead in prayer. And that boy, too, in that part of the country we stand as a pray and we sit to stay, he stood. The congregation stood with him. He's looking up toward the heavens, he's praying. And in his prayer, he says this, God, I seem to be gazing in through the open door. I see the Lamb in the midst of the throne. That morning at family worship, they were reading the fourth chapter of Revelation for John saw the door. A door was opened in heaven. And he prays, I seem to be gazing in through the door. And I see the Lamb in the midst of the throne with the keys of death and of hell at his girdle. Then he paused, began to weep, strangely moved by God. After a little, when he was able to control himself, he began again. Looking toward the heavens, he cried, God, there." Power there, let it loose. And at that moment, the miracle happened. Oh, my dear people, have you witnessed the Bible? Have you seen God at work in the field? God moved into the midst of men in that church. And suddenly, Half the congregation slumped on the top of each other. About between eighty and a hundred fell into a trance. Now don't ask me to explain this because I can't. Read the history of revival. Jonathan Edward revival in New England. The 59 revival in Ireland and in Scotland. The hundred or four, nineteen or four other revival in Wales. These were characterized by physical manifestations that cannot be explained on the basis of the human. We have to acknowledge that God is in God was certainly in that visitation. But the most remarkable thing that happened that night was this, that at that very moment, and this was happening in the church, a village five miles distant from the church, suddenly was gripped by an awareness of God. There wasn't a single minister near it. 
No special effort. Nothing in the nature of evangelism. A sleeping village. Suddenly gripped by God. The Holy Spirit moving into the homes of the people. And here and there a whole family in the matter of hours brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The place was shaken where they were assembled together and multitudes were added to the church. And the following day, the churches in the parish were crowded. And God moved in in such a manner that there was hardly a house in the whole community, in the whole parish, but had someone in it who found the Lord Jesus Christ a Savior in some cases, whole family. That God, at what thought, had that boy that seems to be lacking in our ministry today. He had the Holy Ghost. He's today a minister in southern Arabia, a missionary under the auspices of the Church of Scotland, and his ministry is been wonderfully blessed among Mohammedans. God, the Holy Ghost, doing the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the filling of the Holy Ghost, is the answer to the missionary problem today. I'm convinced of that. Now it's quite obvious that uh, the early disciples had certain fundamental convictions. They believed in unction rather than entertainment. These are days when a great deal of emphasis is placed on the need of entertainment. I want to read an extract from a letter that I received from a group of ministers in London. You may have heard of Theodore Bamber, an outstanding preacher in England. He signed the letter along with others. We are at our wit's end to know what to do with our young people who made decision for Christ recently at Haringey. They are demanding all sorts of entertainment, and if we do not provide it, we just cannot hold it. Tragic. I say tragic. Where is the Holy Ghost? Where is the gripping truth of God? lacking. Ah, but the early disciples believed in unction 
and not in entertainment. One of the sad features that characterizes much that goes under the name of evangelism is this craze for entertainment and this emphasis upon what man himself can do. We can do this, we must do that. And if we do this and that, then God is sure to work. I was arrested by an address given by one of our workers at the minister's conference recently. I refer to a young worker in our own mission that will be visiting Canada shortly. She made this statement. God is not obliged to send revival because we work toward revival. He's not even obliged to send revival if we pray, but he is bound by covenant promise to send revival when we humble ourselves and seek his faith. She was, of course, speaking from that great passage, Eat my people. All by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith. I in heaven will hear and will come and heal their land. That is the attitude and the approach that God honors. They believe in unction and not in entertainment. Over to say, how can we get the teenager? How can we get the teenager today that in many parts of the world seems to be going wild, living in utter disregard to high principles? How can we get him? Well, how did they get them in the early days of the church? How are they getting them just now in many parts of northwest Scotland? Thank God we are seeing movements of the Spirit. I wouldn't say that we're witnessing revival such as we witnessed in 49, 50, 51, 52. But teenagers, are being arrested not by special effort, not by publicity in the field of evangelism, but because of the prevailing prayer of men and women. I saw that happening recently in Ireland in a most masked manner. A group of men giving themselves to waiting upon God. A group of men anointed by the Holy Ghost and praying in the Spirit. In touch with heaven, brought heaven down. So that I witnessed this. Godless sinner stopping me on the street. 
as he left his car coming over to me and stayed. I was in the meeting last night. Will you show me the way to God? Felicity? No. Unction. God. The Holy Spirit. I read part of that letter to you. But I didn't tell you that they asked me what entertainment did I provide in the Lewis and Harry's revival. What entertainment? Well, I couldn't help smiling when I read that. I wrote back and said that I took nothing at all to do with the arranging of anything in the nature of entertainment. But I left that to the young converts themselves. And uh, they found their entertainment in five prayer meetings a week in each five. Five prayer meetings. And indeed, they found their life and they found their entertainment. I was saying to the students at the college today that I cannot understand all this talk about follow-up work. Well, you may not be talking about it in Canada, but I can assure you they talk about it in Britain. You can't have a crusade or a special effort in the field of evangelism without uh, arranging for men and women to follow up those who have made a decision at the crusade, such as Billy Graham or others. Call on them and try and get them interested in the church. Try and get them to come to some place of worship. Follow them up. My dear people, I just can't understand it. Surely a person born again of the Spirit of God need not to be followed up. Why, the moment he comes into vital relationship with God, aspirations are created that find expression in his attendance in the prayer meeting, far less public question in the church on Sabbath. Aspirations after God, as the heart panted after the water brook, so panted my soul after thee, O God. Don't misunderstand me. I believe that there is a need, a great need today for instruction in the Word of God because of so many of our young people, yes, and old people, ignorant of the Word, there is a need for instruction. But oh, don't tell me that a person who has found the Savior needs to be followed up. He'll search out for green pastures and he'll find them where food is given that will nourish the hunger after God in his soul is born again. Because that doesn't follow in every case where there's only decision. Decision. Oh, the thousands today in our land of any who are living under a 
self-created illusion and going on in contentment to a Christless hell who made a decision and because of them having made a decision led to believe that they're Christians. There never was a greater delusion forged on the anvils of hell than that. That doesn't make me a Christian. Making a decision, joining the church, becoming a Sunday school teacher or an elder or a minister. That doesn't make me a Christian. A Christian is that person who knows the power of the Holy Ghost bringing the personality of God to be incorporated in his personality and suddenly making this profound discovery that heaven has invaded his spirit. Oh, how great, how great our need is to rediscover the personality of the Holy Ghost in our work and witness to God. I labored as a Presbyterian minister for 17 years. I was, I should imagine, fairly successful as a minister in three congregations in Scotland. But there came a moment when with a sense of baffling and frustration, I said, God, if you cannot do something better for me than I know now, I'm giving up the ministry and going back to this. Listen, dear people. God missed when I found myself at the end of all human resources. And no one need come to me and say there isn't such an experience as the baptism of the Holy Ghost subsequently from that. God next. A professor in New College, Edinburgh, faced me with the question, what difference has this experience made in your ministry? Well, I said, following that visitation of God in my own study, I went forth to preach the same sermons that I've been preaching for 17 years. Of course, I was evangelical. But you can be as dry as a cough and yet be very fundamental. Such is my case. I went out to preach the same sermon. But with this difference, that now I saw hundreds weeping their way to Jesus. That's the difference. That's the difference that the Holy Ghost makes. Oh, we are laboring and tiring ourselves and seeing little accomplished, but oh, let God come. Let God come. I'm an old soldier of the First World War. Some of you may have been there. I was there. And you will recall that awful morning 
When the Germans sent over clouds of poison gas, the clouds came right over the highland brigade of the 51st Scottish Division. The thing was terrible. Well, now, what could we do, officers, or non-commissioned officers, such as I was? What could we do? Would I suggest that we call all who could stand to fix their bayonets and charge the cloud of gas? You die. Foolish! Or would I get onto the line and get in touch with the battery and cry all with all haste, get the batteries to fire on the clouds of gas? Folly. Folly. That wouldn't stop the havoc and the dying and the desolation and the destruction. The miracle happened. You read it in history. A miracle happened. The wind changed. And one breath of wind did what the ingenuity of man could never do. It blew the clouds back to the German line. Wind did it. Breath did it. Oh, what an illustration of what is possible when God, the Holy Ghost, moves in. We are living today in an atmosphere that seems to me to be impregnated by satanic power. Horses are let loose that are out to defy every known Christian principle. And we organize and we have our conventions and our conferences and we pass our resolutions and we organize in an endeavor to counter this devilish movement in the world. But the movement's advancing. Oh, for a breath of God to come, the winds of heaven to blow, and soon we shall see communism and all the other isms that have their origin in hell swept back to the caverns of death from which they came. But God, my dear people, we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen, and it could happen again if the Church of Jesus Christ would again recognize the personality of the Holy Ghost. And then might I say that here were men who put power before influence. And they put the power of God. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And the Holy Ghost came upon them. 
and power invested there. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, and the church of Jesus Christ born in the night, because they put power and before influence. Now I think it will be generally agreed that uh, the state of the world today presents a challenge uh, to the Christian church. There is a growing conviction among true-thinking men that unless we witness a demonstration of the power of God that will lift men beyond the ordinary into the sphere of the extraordinary, beyond the natural into the sphere of the supernatural. The average man that we know will look upon us, will stagger back, disappointed, disillusioned, and despairing. The early church conquered, said Glover, because the early believers in the power of the Holy Ghost outlived, outfought, and outdied the pagan here, a quality of life that could not be explained on the basis of the human. I see again, until we rediscover that, and with purpose and true intention seek God, we shall go on preaching out evangelical sermons, but the multitudes of pass us to hell. You remember Paul and Silas in prison? Why? They hadn't sufficient influence to keep them out of prison. That was bad enough. But they had so much of the power of God after shape the old prison to its very foundation and listen to the cry of the penitent. What shall I do to be saved? Not influence. I believe that the hour has come when preachers and pastors and evangelists must forget influence and proclaim the whole counsel of God to a bewildered, a bewildered world. The apostles were not men of influence, not many wives, not many don't know them. God has called the foolish, the weak things, things influence, but prepare to honor God. Oh, give us such men, give us such men, men who will put Reputation aside is necessary. And stand with God in his endeavor 
to bring a lost world back through the preaching of the everlasting gospel based on fundamental truth. What have they then? What have they? They believed in the Holy Ghost. Notice the prayer of verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatening, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thy hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. You see, they looked for signs and wonder. And because they looked and expected, they saw signs and wonders happen. We saw that in Ireland, in the town of Lisburn, just six weeks ago. I question if I witnessed anything like it outside of the heavens. Suddenly, through the singing of one of our workers that I've already referred to that will be visiting Canada shortly, she's an outstanding singer, but she sings under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, and she sang a lovely hymn that speaks of the blood getting deeper than the stain can go. The blood reaching deeper than the stain can go. And as she sang wave after wave of God came over the meat. It's eight o'clock. The benediction is now pronounced. And I sit down and she sits down. And then an elder of the church rose to his feet and said then, God, Mr. Campbell has sat down, Miss Morrison has sat down, now you get to your feet. Strange words, now you get to your feet. And demonstrate your power. We were in that church until twenty minutes past eleven. No one thought of leaving. The cry of the penitent, the cry of Christian men seeking to get right with God. Again and again men would say, God, let the blood reach deeper than the pain that troubles me. One farmer was crying bitterly. Oh, let the blood reach deeper than the stain that troubles me. That's God at work. They look for signs and look for wonders, and that happens. I close by quoting a verse from a hymn following the quotation, Then Peter tells with the Holy Ghost. That's a significant word. Filled with the Holy Ghost. If you're full of the Holy Ghost, 
You cannot be full of anything else. God means full. Every avenue of my redeemed personality under the control of God filled with the Holy Ghost and God now moving in that food. Here is that empty the thou mayest fill me a clean vessel in thine hand with no power but as thou givest graciously at each command I take the power of Pentecost I take the promise Holy Ghost but who save me to the uttermost I take the undertake the testing that if I obey the laws of the Spirit the power of the Spirit will obey me. Miracles will happen. Multitudes added to the church. Men bowing before the crown right of our crown will be. First of all, it speaks to me of a crisis creating a sense of urgency. A crisis creating a sense of urgency. In the case of the lepers, the crisis came when they were made to face their own dire and desperate need. Listen again to what they said. If we stay here, we die. Here you have a personal consciousness of need and a personal conviction that they themselves must do something about it. I wonder if I have here a far fetched comparison suggesting the desperate need of our own land today and perhaps the need of our individual life is there not a famine today a famine for righteousness a famine for true godliness a famine for the movings of the Spirit of God in the midst of men. I make bold to say this morning that the streams of vital Christianity never ran so low as they seem to be running today. Take the world that you know and the world that I know today, are we not in the midst of a world that is rocked in a sea of trouble because we've left God in the land of forgotten things? We have said we can get on without you. That is the desperate condition 
and state of the world today, not that man, generally speaking, is more wicked than in other days, but he is certainly more godless. I received a letter from one of our workers laboring in the center of England, and in her letter she said this, the average man in the average village in the middle of England is either an atheist or an agnostic. And here I am speaking about Britain. I can't speak for your country. But my deep-seated conviction is that the crying need of this momentous hour in world system is for a manifestation of God. Is it true that Canada has never known revival? I've been told that. You've had movements in different places. You've had manifestations of God in some communities. But I understand from the pages of church history in the realm of revival that Canada has never witnessed a nationwide manifestation of God. No, the need, the crying need, the desperate need is for this manifestation not just church activity, not just conventions and conferences for the deepening of spiritual life, not just gathering together to discuss the question of revival. All that may be helpful and has its place in the economy of grace, but the need of this hour is for something altogether different from anything that man can conceive of, or man arrange, a manifestation, sounds from heaven, God stepping into the midst of men and demonstrating his power, the God who threw worlds into space by the touch of his hand demonstrating that power in the midst of man whom he hath created and whom he judges and will judge. That is the picture you have here. A people moved, a situation saved because of something happening that man of himself could never accomplish just a sound from heaven. That leads one to ask this question, what is the church really prepared to do about it? Here were lepers who did something. Now I want to be perfectly personal and direct. I believe that there are many within these walls who are conscious of the desperate need 
of the land today. And they will subscribe to the conviction that revival is the only answer. That a manifestation of God is the only answer to the problem. That is your conviction. Well, that was the conviction of the lepers. If we stay here, we die. We'll do something about it. In other words, we'll take a risk. And in the economy of grace, blessed be God, there are no risks. They did something about it. Now tell me, what are we really prepared to do about it? Let's face ourselves with unqualified honesty. Let us stand in the full blaze of the searching beam of God. I'm talking about revival. I'm interested in revival. I'm aware of the desperate situation. What am I doing about it? I wonder if I may ask one question. How much time did you spend today in prayer that God might visit the land? God might come in revival power and in revival blessing. Measure your sincerity and your honesty, yes, your Christian experience, by that. I have said frequently recently that it is my deep-seated conviction that much that goes under the name of church activity, and I say this is a Presbyterian minister, is just the laughing stock of devils. We are not sincere. We are not sincere. We don't act according to what appears to be our convictions. If I really was concerned, if I really viewed the situation as heaven must do it today, why every moment at my disposal would be spent in pleading the promises of God. That's Christianity. That's God in the soul. That's the life force of Jesus making itself manifest through my mortal flesh. But my dear people, are we there? Are we there? Oh, you may say what a dear lady said about my preaching some little time ago. I was asked to address a conference of women outside of London. Never an easy conference to address. However, I was there for a week, the only male among them. After one sermon or address, the lady, a titled lady, the wife of a lord, she was here to say a very interesting address, a very interesting address, but we must not forget that the dear man was born and brought up among the hills of Scotland, and he has a theology of his own. No, this is the word, and I believe the message that the Church of Jesus Christ 
stands in need of in this desperate hour that the church of God will face reality and will face sincerity. He that doeth truth, or in other words, he that is truthful will come to the light. Notice further that there is here also a consciousness of obligation. We do not well. This is a day of glad tidings. Of course it is. A day when God wills to pour his spirit. If my people call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith, then I in heaven will hear and will come, I'm quoting from the Gaelic, and will come and heal the land. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we believe in, my dear people. This is the day of grace. This is the hour of Pentecostal reality. I've said repeatedly recently, if Pentecost cannot be repeated, if visitations such as was witnessed by the early church following Pentecost cannot be repeated, then we are living in a day when the word of God holds no pattern or precedent. But we are living in that day. We are living in the day of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit that hath been outpoured. But oh, for men and women, so in the hands of the Holy Ghost, and so possessed by the Spirit, that they will recognize that this is indeed an hour of glad tidings. We have a message. We have an answer to the problems that confront the church, yes, and the world today. But God is forgotten. That is an arresting passage in the prophecy of Isaiah. Your sins and your iniquities have sent God into hiding. What sin? What iniquity? the sin and the iniquity of his people. And I make bold to say again that there is only one thing that hinders revival in Canada today, and that is the sin of God's people. Revival doesn't begin among the ungodly, of course it does. It begins among the people of God even my people, called by my name, if they would do something, oh, here were lepers, and they did something about it, and because they did something about it, the situation was saved. Oh, let me say again, the man who has eyes to see is today gazing 
upon ominous shadows a slanted world that is ripening for repentance or judgment. Repentance. Oh, that the word may ring through the Christ- Christian church. Repentance. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God doth with grief and hatred turn from it. Eat my people, turn from it and seek my faith. Oh, let me repeat it. Words that are pregnant with meaning. I in heaven will listen. But why is he not listening? Why is he not listening? Why is he not coming down? Why is the land not healed? Because the church is asleep. Regardless of the multitudes that are perishing as represented by Samaria here. A famine a desperate situation. There is one thing above another that the church of Jesus Christ needs today. It is surely, oh, it is surely a sense, a gripping sense of an engrossing purpose. Why is the church in existence? Why was it called into being Surely to propagate the message of the gospel. Surely to honor God in the midst of men. I wonder how many of us believe that the character of God is committed to his people. Believe that? Committed to his people. Committed to his church. When they fail, he fails in the eyes of the average man of the world. Oh, tell me, dear people, are we truly representing God? Are we showing a concern? Are we gripped by fundamental convictions that unless a man is born again, he will be doomed and damned forever? My dear people, how many of us believe in hell? I'm glad you're going to discuss it. How many of us believe it? It seems to me that few in the Christian church today really believe in the doom of the damned. Could we sleep if we did? Could we rest if we did? Would the prayer meeting be so empty? And listen, you do not judge the life vitality of any congregation by what you see on Sunday morning. Of course you don't. That's not the criteria. That is not the evidence of spirituality. You go to the prayer meeting on Wednesday or Thursday. That's the evidence. That's the evidence. That's the measure of your impact. That's the measure of your interest in revival. That's the measure of of your vision relative to the desperate need of the country. That's the measure. 
Oh, let's face it this morning. Let's face it with honesty and sincerity. Listen to the words of Scripture I send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and to God. My dear people, this is the conviction. Oh, this is the conviction that gives purpose and gives direction to the true child of God. I read somewhere, I think it was from Boston's fourfold state, that great book that comes down to us from the Puritan period. This is what Boston said. No man is born into the world whose work is not born with it, suggesting that God has a plan. Young folk, are you listening? That God has a plan and that God has a purpose. Why is it that so few young men today are offering for foreign mission work? Why is it that so few young men are willing to go out to the villages and the country districts of Canada to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's just because they have no sense of purpose or a heaven-given direction. They are not aware of the fact that God has a plan and that God has a purpose. That every man's life is a plan of God. Oh, I'm not prepared to depart from my ambition. Let the multitudes go to hell, my ambition. My security, my stated salary. God help us, God help us. Is that the spirit of the Christian? Is that the spirit of the man who is willing to face the implications of Calvary? No. The cry of his heart is, take the world, but give me Jesus. All the day will come when through my sacrificial giving of myself I shall come before him with jewels that will sparkle as diamonds in the coronet of his eternal glory. And there because there came an hour in my experience when I faced reality stood before the implications of Calvary and cried, I am going through, Jesus. I am going through. I will pay the price whatever others do. I will go the way of the world's despise of you. I started out, Jesus. I am going through. I was in a room one day young woman came into the room and she knelt at the couch beside me. She was weeping bitter, weeping bitter. And she cried, Mr. Campbell, I'm in my Gethsemane. I'm in my Gethsemane. What was it? She was engaged to a young minister a young minister that certainly will make his name 
in the church. He had asked her hand in marriage. One night, she's kneeling in prayer in her own room. She couldn't tell me whether she fell asleep or fell into a trance. She couldn't tell me. But she heard the wave of the damned, the wave of the masses, of the masses in Congo, in Congo, in Congo. That night, in her Gethsemane, she said no to the hand offered her and gripped the hand of the man of Calvary. Since then, that young girl has been instrumental in leading hundreds to Christ. She's waiting for Congo to open to her. And she'll be back there the moment the door opens. But many others out waiting to get in. Why do I tell you that story? Was it easy? Was it easy? To put that hand aside with all that it meant and all that it promised. God may not ask you to do that. But he asked you to face the implications of Calvary. Oh, we're so unwilling to face the cross. We want an easy path. Was the path of the Master easy? I often think of him there in that struggle in the wilderness. The enemy comes to him. The kingdoms of the world Demonstrate your power. Throw yourself down. Turn the stones into bread and the world will follow you. And I sometimes wonder if Jesus at that moment didn't just pause for a second. And then he lifted his eyes. He looked down toward Gethsemane and he saw the bitter cup. He lifted his eyes and he saw Calvary with its shame and death. But I venture to say that his eyes rose higher and he saw a city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. He saw the redeemed host. He listened to their singing. They are singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And he knew that if he failed in that hour, that song would never be sung. Get thee behind me, Satan. And he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem making possible the good tidings. I lay beside at least a few yards from a highlander 
young man of the 42nd Highlander, at the Battle of Passchendaele. He is wounded, badly wounded, in his right arm. He is doing his best to stem the flow of blood. Indeed, I saw him tear his shirt to try and bandage the wound. But as he works at this wounded arm, he's looking across that bloody field. And there in front of him, he saw a young man with the tartan of the 42nd Highlanders, the Black Rock. I heard him say, boys, I'm sure that's Geoffrey Blair Gowry. I'm sure that's Geoffrey Blair, Blair Gowry. And then as I watched that wounded comrade out there, I saw a hand being lifted, as though beckoning for help, or beckoning for someone to give him a drink. Then I saw this young man springing to his feet, and in face of the enemy's fire, cried, That's Geoffrey Blair Gowry, and I'll save him or die in the attempt. And he saved him. He saved him. Oh, for that spirit. Oh, for that caliber. Oh, for that sense of purpose and conviction. I'll save them. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Take ambition and security. Oh, take it, take it, take it all. But let me be instrumental in saving souls that will sparkle as diamonds in the coronet of his eternal glory. Are we there, dear people? Oh, are we there? This is a day of glad tidings, and we hold our peace, the crime, oh, the crime of being silent. Am I speaking to criminals today? Am I speaking to criminals in face of the need, in face of the desperate situation, silent? Oh, may God forgive us. I'm sure some of you must have heard of the great Dr. Thomas Chalmers, the leader of the disruption from the Church of Scotland in 1843 when the great free Church of Scotland came into being, but became the great missionary church of our beloved land. This movement was led by Thomas Chalmers. They left their manses, they left their churches because they refused to bow to the establishment or patronage. They came right out. Hundreds of founded the church. Dr. Chalmers is visiting the northeast of Scotland in the interest of the church and on this occasion is staying in one of our country hotels in that part of our land. After supper, the proprietor came to the doctor and said, Dr. Chalmers, will you lead us in worship? It was their custom, of course, as it is the custom there. 
to have worship after supper, even in hotels. He was asked to take the book as it is commonly referred to. And while reading the chapter, he was suddenly gripped by the conviction that he should speak to the proprietor about his soul. The proprietor was a God-fearing man. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a man who read the Bible and insisted upon family worship every evening. Something said to Thomas Chalmers, now speak to the man. They went on their knees and Chalmers prayed, and as he prayed, this conviction seemed to grip him. But another voice spoke, and the other voice said, there are quite a lot of guests in the hotel tonight, and uh, the staff are very busy, including the proprietor himself. Just wait for a more opportune moment. You'll be back again in the near future, and you can take time to talk to him there. Now this is in Jalmer's diary. He went to his room, and retired to rest, sleeping until about midnight, when a disturbance in the hotel woke. Couldn't understand it. But on coming down to breakfast, he was told that at 11.20, the proprietor had died of a heart attack. Dr. Chalmers tells us that he went back to his room, couldn't think of breakfast, buried his head in the pillow, and cried. It was, my God, an opportune moment, but I missed it. It was an opportune moment, but I missed it. This is a day of glad tidings. Oh, are we missing the opportunity that is ours? I believe that God is calling for men, especially young men, who will get into the battle. With this battle cry, I'll save them or die in the attempt. I'm sure that was the thought in the mind of the poet when he penned the words, Give me men to match my mountains. Give me men to match my plains. Men with empires in their purpose. Men with eras in their brains. Give me men to plead for nations. Like Elijah on his knees, who in hours of death-like stillness, waits to catch that heavenly breeze. Give me men of faith and vision, stripped of every earthly gaze, till across our parched valleys, dark will roll God's clouds away. Oh, give us, give us,
and the physician came to her then, or whether she fell into a trance during the prayer period, and the vision came then to her. She couldn't be sure about that. But this is the vision that she had. She saw the church of her father crowded with young people. She saw a strange minister in the pulpit, and through that vision, she was convinced that God was speaking to her and revealing that revival was going to visit not only their parish, but the whole of the Western Isles. She sent for the minister and told the minister her story and suggested to him that he and his office bearers should give themselves to waiting upon God in prayer. Wait, she said, upon God until God reveals why revival is not coming to the parish. The minister, a wise man, listened to the words of this dear woman, a real prophet. He called his office bearers together and it was decided on the suggestion of one of the sisters that two nights a week should be spent waiting from God in prayer. They would kneel in a little cottage at Barrett's Crossroads and the minister and his office bearers at the other end of the parish on Tuesday and Friday night. So they gave themselves that is waiting upon God in prayer. Weeks passed, months passed, and nothing happened. The churches were attempted. The young people of the parish asked indifferent. The visiting houses closed. Places of entertainment crowded. But very little thought of God until one night, miracle, miracle. A young man in the group of all his bearers stood up and read from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. Not just a blessing. There are a great many people, and thereafter are blessings. You may be here this evening, and your after are blessings. But here were men, at least one young man, Seeking the blessing of the Lord. He looked down at the minister and the other of his bearers that were kneeling among straw in a barn. And in very crude language he addressed them. They don't appear so crude in the Gaelic language. It's a little softer than your English. You said this. It seems to me just so much humbug 
to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. He lifted up his arms toward the heavens and cried, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? That young man got no father with his prayer. He knelt, and then a strange thing happened. Something that started the minister who had never seen it before. This young man fell into a trance. Now, as I frequently say, please do not come to me after this meeting and ask me questions about the physical manifestations of this movement, because I cannot answer your questions. I could not understand the physical manifestation, but of this I am certain God was in me. When that young man fell into this trance, a power was let loose in the parish that shook the Hebrides. Though I wasn't there, there was no public intimation of evidence to be held in any of the churches, but on the following day the churches were crowded. Crowded by whom? Crowded by men and women seeking after God. The miracle had happened. God had taken the field. This is not a special effort. This is not a crusade. This is not an evangelistic campaign. Organized and sponsored by men and by churches. This is God getting into the field. The God of miracles and the God of a revival. In the following day, the minister called on the two sisters. And uh, they knew that something had happened. They too at that particular hour when this was happening in the barn, the strangely moved by a fresh infilling of the Holy Ghost, 82 and 84 years of age. Who was the strange minister that we saw in the pulpit? Asked one of them. The minister replied, Sure, I cannot tell you. But a certain minister from Glasgow has suggested that we invite a certain man. I've just been on the phone with this minister in Glasgow, and he referred to a man who saw a gracious movement in the city of Glasgow some little time ago. Well, I happen to be that man, this is something, dear people, that I just cannot understand. 
while God in his mercy could have so directed that I should be called to visit the island of Louis at that particular time. But I was glad that the college was prepared to release me for ten days. It was agreed that I should go to the parish of Barber for ten days to conduct some Yes, they told me on the phone that there was a movement, that the churches were crowded with people, but as yet nothing had broken out that would favor or revival other than an influence was created among the people for the house of God. Well, I found myself on the pier in Stormy, met by the minister and two of his officers there. Just as I stepped off the gangway, one of the officers there came over to me and said, Might I ask you a question before you go any further? Are you walking with God? This is one of the men that prayed in the barn. This was one of the men to whom God had spoken. And he was afraid about the act of God in the past. Are you walking with God? And I was glad that I was able to say to him, well, I fear God at anything. Uh, if I had time, I would have told you of the gracious experience that I had in my own study when God, in his mercy, met with me after 17 years of frustration and baffling as a minister, tired of it all, at the end of my at the end of all human resources, seeing so very little accomplished, and then God steps into my life. You needn't come to me at the close of this service and tell me that there's nothing in this talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. My dear people, to me it's the most real thing. God coming down and God taking possession until the body so trembled that one was afraid the human frame could not contain God. There that is what happened to me. And in that realization and consciousness, I went to Louis. I'm now at the field, and the minister is talking to me. Yes, we're sure you're tired, Mr. Campbell, and uh, possibly hungry. Well, there's a supper waiting for you at the man. But uh, we wonder if you will address a meeting in the parish church at nine o'clock tonight. Just on our way to the man, it will be a short meeting. We just want uh, the people to know that you've come and that you're to minister to us 
for ten days. Well, if you're interested to know that I never got that supper, and uh, that instead of being on the island for ten days, I was there for almost four years. We went to the church. A congregation of approximately 300 had gathered. It was a good meeting. It was a gracious sense of God. I preached for about an hour and a half. You see, in the Highlands, we believed in long sermons. I mustn't forget that I'm in Canada. The night and left work before midnight. The line gives the address and the minister pronounced a benediction. The congregation leaves the church. Lying, walking down the aisle with this same young man who fell into a trance and a bound. They're walking towards the door of the church. Then he stood and looking up toward the heavens to cry, God, you dare not kill us. Could you say that, that? Could I say that? Ah, here was a man near us to God, and a man who stood in the church. Here was a man who knew the secrets of the eternal. God, we made a promise. And I believe that you're a covenant to God that must be true to your covenant engagement. And I'm looking to you now to fulfill your promise. The pour water on the fashion and lights upon the dry ground to pray and continue praying for such seven hours. And then I saw the door of the session and the session clerk of the church coming in. Mr. Campbell comes to the door and see what's happened. See what's happened. Revival has surely come. There must be anything between six and seven hundred standing outside. A crowd of young people that were at a concert and danced in the village hall are outside here and many of them have cried to God for mercy. Open the church again. Open the church again. And let them in. The church was opened again, and this congregation walked in, crowded the church in every corner, took the steps, the aisles, and the pulpit itself. So that I had difficulty in getting to the pulpit when I got there. I found a young woman, a certain church, a graduate of Aberdeen University, lying flat on her face in the pulpit, and asking, Is there nothing for a sinner like me? She was one of the parties to me at the concert that night. But now on her face, crying to God for mercy. That meeting continued until four o'clock in the morning. That's how I didn't get my touch. 
4 o'clock, I'm leaving the church. A young man comes to me. God-fearing young man, but not a Christian. As I said again and again, you can be God-fearing and not be a Christian. There are thousands of God-fearing people in the highlands of Scotland who are not Christians. Spending church, conducting family worship, praying to the children, but they're not Christians. Oh, there's a difference. Let me say that you could gather all the natural goodness in the world into one grand whole, and you wouldn't have that which would constitute one Christian experience. Natural goodness is not Christian experience. A Christian is one who knows the experience of the Holy Ghost bringing the personality of God to be incorporated in his personality and suddenly discovering the heaven has invaded his soul and his supernatural office. This young man was a good living fellow. He came to me and said, Mr. Campbell, there's something wonderful happening in the parish. There's a crowd of people at the police station. There must be anything between three and four hundred. I don't know where they come from, other than that a bus is here from another parish, and we can't understand it. They're in the police station, and some are weeping, and some are kneeling by the roadside, and some are crying to God for mercy. We cannot understand it. Why did they go to the police station? So his constable there is a God-fearing man. Next to the police station, the cottage, where the two elderly sisters live. But that the magnetic power that drew them to the police station. I cannot say that they were there. So I went along and saw a sight that gladdened my heart. Young man, Old men, middle-aged men, and women, gripped by God, moved by the Holy Ghost that convicts the of righteousness and of judgment. They're there on their faces, many of them, crying to God for masters who are interested to know that Seven of the young men who were saved that night are parish ministers today in the church.